35. Hello world, how are you doing? As you can hear, the periodical cicadas are still here. I think they're starting to die now. The men at least, that's how I'm told it works. It's uh, not quite as magical as I found it last week. Stepping over thousands of their crushed, smushed corpses on my garden path. They've all mated in the trees, or going at it, and then uh, the men fall down dead. (laughs) Um, So I guess we are slowly moving into the time of the legendary cicada rain. The rain of insect corpses. Tell you something, it's not going to be fun clearing out the gutters in a few weeks. Saw some videos of people uh, frying them up and eating them last week. You know, survivalist types and uh, this new breed of insect gourmand who are out to save the planet uh, one locust burger at a time. Fair play to them. The FDA has even issued a warning that people with a shellfish allergy shouldn't eat cicadas. They are apparently related to uh, shrimp and lobster. Yeah, you know, I can see that. When you watch them midway through them shedding their shell, um, they do look a little bit like when they serve uh, the lobster tail in a restaurant and it's kind of like being opened up for you and pushed out through through the back of the shell. Definitely see a family resemblance. Not quite sure I'm ready to start eating them yet, though. But, uh, you know, I respect you if you are. If you're out there harvesting the bounty of nature. When we lived in San Diego, I went to see the Grunion Run one time. uh, After finishing night shift. Um, There's these little sardine-type fish called Grunions. And thousands of them come ashore to breed on the beach on uh, full moon nights. Uh, in like early summer, June, July and a lot of uh, Southern California folks make little parties of it you go out, scoop it up and uh, fry them like right there and then on little Apache grills yeah, I went one time just after finishing a night shift it was, you know, beautiful night, full moon, Torrey Pines Beach um, seeing, you know, all these fish kind of like just wriggling on the sand and uh, there's not that many people out there, but a few little groups. And one of them offered me a plate, you know, fresh catch. And, you know, I love fish, but I, t- I turned it down. It just, I, I don't know what it was. Um, you know, it was midnight on a beach and I wasn't hungry. But now, I do actually regret not sampling them. But these cicadas, mm, nah. Don't think I'm going to have any regrets about not eating these ugly little chaps doesn't feel the same one got in my sandal the other day as I was walking like mid stride and it popped under my toes yeah and it was as bad as it sounds
You know, they, they do say that as a species we're going to have to start incorporating insects a lot more into our uh, food economy to combat climate change and water shortages and stuff. They might start bringing them more into cattle feed and, and maybe high-protein toppings at Jamba Juice. Maybe a few bins of them at Whole Foods get some exclusive branding in for a few years before Kirkland starts selling the bulk bags of locust flour or whatever. It's going to be the right move for the planet. But uh, I'm not ready to start frying them up yet. Interesting to think about, though. Where will cicadas fit in the food pyramid in 50 years? Right below dead ancient Egyptians, I guess. What do you mean dead Egyptians are not in the food pyramid? Oh, aren't they? Well, why is it a food pyramid, then? Checkmate, Gordon Ramsay, you sweary food muppet. So I guess uh, Brood XI or Brood XII might be crawling out onto the menu in uh, 2040 or 2050 or whenever. And if any of you survival types or insect gourmands are listening to the show, I want you to know right now and you want to get a head start on this amazing trend that's going to be happening I just want to put it out there all you can eat cicadas round at my gaff whenever you want next two weeks I mean not cicadas obviously they're, uh, they're land shrimp <laughs> hey you know what I'll even give you a spoon and a beer so you can climb up a ladder to the gutters and just chow down all you can eat good lobster. <laughs> I'll even throw in some barbecue sauce. You know, the good stuff. Trader Joe's. Carolina Gold. No, that's probably not a good idea. If they're like lobster, I'll probably just squeeze a lemon and a drop of Kerrygold. Anyway, come round, have a feast, and clean my gutters. <laughs> Killed two birds with one stone, as it were. I know, I know. Stupid phrase, that. I hate that phrase. Everyone knows it's easier to kill one bird with two stones. It's an experiment for you at home, kids. <laughs> anyway, to today's show. You'd be pleased to know they all worked out. I actually got to go and check out the Trump Presidential Library. Well, what they're doing to create it. And I'll tell you all about it in a minute. It was more of a kind of a focus group thing. Uh, you know, in a bunch of porter cabins and tents on a building site. Out near John Foster Dulles. You know, the airport. You know, it's mad that we have an airport named after a Nazi sympathizer. I mean, dude was literally called a traitor by Supreme Court Justice Arthur Goldberg. Nuts. It's all in this great book, The Brothers by Stephen Kinzer. Great book, check it out. Link in the transcript. Anyway, I was a bit sceptical when Hedge first gave me the plans for the Trump presidential library. You know, I thought he was trying to trick me again. You know, that whole Flannery thing. But no, it turns out it's, it's a real thing. The plan's utterly mad. You know, they've got McKinsey and co working on it with the Smithsonian and the National Archives. A load of those super PACs, America First. They're already raising millions from it, from the... Uh, 
Trump zombie cult suckers in middle America. Foxland. So the original Presidential Library remit um, is that they are supposed to be repositories of just the documents of a presidency in one place. A sort of small library come museum. But what happened from Nixon and then to the, into the Bush years, they've slowly become more uh, destination museums with some interactive exhibits. Like the W1 in Dallas um, has this like state-of-the-art situation room that lets you role-play in a very ridiculous and closed way his decisions and behaviours from 9-11 to Katrina. And of course, you know, if you make choices that deviate at all from what Bush did, then, uh, surprise, surprise, big red lights and America dies or something. <laughs> it's, you know, it's pure, it's mad, mad propaganda. Rehabilitating and managing this terrible plutocratic American leadership that we're stuck with. So, of course, the Trump library was always going to be way, way more crazy and huge. And, of course, it's out on this dodgy piece of land near Nazi collaborator Dulles Airport. And uh, I was thinking it was another flammery setup from Hedge, but no. There was an email in the document dump that he sent me asking for volunteers. And I answered the call, and it all worked out. And Hedge is well jealous, which is just another bonus. 11.38 a.m. This is Andy's phone. Leave a message. Swidman, you lucky bastard. As far as I can tell, the library tour looks legit. I'm guessing, given the last president's track record, that he just flat-out fired folks and, and pressured the National Archives into being involved with building this prototype. It's obviously a huge boondoggle. Just another way of scamming money from the government. Classic Trump. So, yeah, it looks like it's been thrown up on this strange parcel of land out by Dulles, probably owned by him or a Republican shell company conjured out of restructured blood money or something. The usual M.O. And he's probably already billed the government a thousand times over the market price to lease the land for a few years. I bet they already used it to pay off more lawyers and hookers. And we'll never find out because you can't audit the Pentagon, just like there's no oversight of all the insider trading. You know, they probably only dragged the National Archives and Smithsonian into it as payback for them not totally playing along with the big lie about the size of his inauguration crowd. So, yeah, I'm glad you're going. Just do your best. Record everything. I honestly don't think they'll stop you. It's probably best not to mention me, or the shoe council, or how you saw the plans. But don't worry, I really don't think it will matter. But, you know, best to err on the side of caution. Uh, don't mention your politics or your podcast. But really, don't worry about it. I'm like 90% sure it's only been built because someone at Archives knows it's a graft in progress, and it's a bureaucratic standoff that has forced them into completing some semblance of the project to cover their hideous middle management asses because they don't have the balls to go full whistleblower because their kid's Montessori school payment is due and the shore house needs a new deck or something. All the usual million entrapments that link us all in D.C. to this dying organism of greed. Honestly, I see this all the time. I'm sure McKinsey and Trump would like to just pocket the money and fuck off, but here we are. It's actually very special. You're basically market testing a genius scam. 
an archetypal living piece of American propaganda, a presidential library for one of the most incompetent and corrupt administrators we've ever seen. You are one lucky fucking lab rat. 6 p.m. I walked down 17th Street to the White House. They said the bus would be waiting around the back, just beyond the South Lawn, on the road loop, where they put the National Christmas tree. I was going to be right on time. I was a very punctual person. The Renwick Art Gallery on the corner was advertising a folk art show called the Appalachian Diaspora. A large poster hanging stiffly from a lamppost promised strange delights. A skull face made from black lung x-rays. Photographs of payday lone neon burning brightly in the darkness of derelict malls. A gigantic sculpture of a pair of breasts made from reclaimed chewing gum. Of all the galleries in DC, the Renwick was one of my favourites. A real weird uncle of a space polishing up the scraps of the Smithsonian collection with a cheeky wink, crouching on the doorstep of the White House, but somehow holding itself aloof from the crowds and the swirling vortex of political theatre. If the bus didn't show up, or if it looked like I was climbing into a nest of QAnon Republican quizlings, then I'd bail on the whole thing and go and see the show instead. Maybe discover what reclaimed chewing gum actually was. I walked down the street past the Eisenhower building and then cut across the grass around the back of the South Lawn. I could see the bus in the middle of the big open space. There were a few people in line and a cop was stood a little way off, watching the whole thing in body armour and with a GoPro type camera mounted on his helmet. One nation under surveillance. I was born at a time when the only face matching was the board game Guess Who. I walked up to the bus. Only one of the people getting on was wearing a red MAGA hat, so I joined the back of the line. It was a classic yellow school bus. It had a misspelled cardboard sign in the window that said, Trump Libby. I'd never been on a school bus before, but I put my kids on one every morning. The license plate said that this one was from Virginia, which made sense since that was where we were going. In 2016, the CIA had borrowed a Virginia school bus just like this and filled its engine compartment with explosives for an alleged training exercise for bomb-sniffing dogs. I think training hadn't been going well, and perhaps they thought they needed to inject realism into the exercises. Maybe they thought some of their dogs would do better using a Stanislavski method technique or something. Anyway, it hadn't worked, and the bomb-sniffing dogs had not discovered the explosives in the engine cavity of the school bus. And the CIA forgot to remove the explosives, and for a week afterwards some kids in Loudoun County, Virginia, just over the border from D.C., were driven to school in what can only be described as a large bomb on wheels. The explosives were only discovered when a county mechanic found them in a routine inspection. No harm done, I guess.
The usual apologies were offered. I remember very little outrage and no investigation as to whose kids were exactly on or near that bus route. Just another in a long line of CIA fuck-ups, with the cloak of national security ever ready to hide their legacy of ashes and incompetence. got on the bus. The driver checked my driver's license and my Covid vaccination card and then wearily checked my name on a clipboard. I noticed there were two more red hats on the bus as I made my way to a clear seat at the back, but overall the passengers seemed to be a real mixed bag. All ages, races, genders were represented. I'd expected everyone to be wearing the usual DC business attire, but even the assumed dress code was varied. There were sports jerseys, pantsuits, and even a Hawaiian shirt. I sat across from a guy in a raven's top, who immediately introduced himself and started talking. His name was Stanley. He was from Baltimore. He was a retired janitor. A janitor, I thought. What are the odds? He was nervous and he peppered me with questions. Where was I from? What did I do? Did I think they were going to ask us who we voted for? I buckled up for some chat. Silver Spring, boom operator, not sure. He told me he had always voted for the president if I knew what he meant. I said that I didn't know what he meant, and he said he voted for Trump, and then he voted for Biden, and that he'd always voted for the president, like his daddy and his granddaddy before him. In fact, the whole family had always loved politics, ever since LBJ had launched his war on poverty, and his granddaddy had said, about time, a war on poverty, where do I surrender? I laughed. He asked what a boom operator was. I told him I held big microphones on film sets. What about them ravens, I said. Maybe this year. Can I ask your professional opinion as a retired janitor? Sure, he said. Okay, I said. What do you think is reclaimed chewing gum? Oh, I know all about that, he said. I'm sure you do, I said. It was way worse in the 80s, he said, scraping it off everywhere I was. Why the 80s? Hubba Bubba Heyday. Hubba Bubba Heyday? Oh, you might not know what Hubba Bubba is, you not being from round here. Oh, I know Hubba Bubba, I said. But yes, you caught me. I am a British American. As usual, my accent had given myself away. Sure, I have different cultural origins, I said. But I know Hubba Bubba. I bet you don't know why the Ravens are the Ravens. Sure I do, he said. Edgar Allan Poe. Okay, I said, but did you know the Raven that inspired the Poe Raven was an English Raven owned by Charles Dickens? Christmas Carol Dickens, he said. Yeah, Christmas Carol Dickens. He owned a talking Raven called Grip, and it impressed Poe so much he wrote a whole poem about it. Wow, said Stanley. You learn something every day. Only if you want to, I said. I've got another question for you, I told him. Have you ever made any sculptures out of reclaimed chewing gum? Figurines, ravens, busts of naked ladies? In the Hubba Bubba heyday, perhaps? No, he said, and he turned away as if he thought I was making fun of him, and he stopped talking to me. I guess I'd discovered a new rule of conversational etiquette. Don't talk about religion, or politics, 
or reclaimed chewing gum full cart. After a few minutes the driver made an announcement. I want you all to know that I know damn well how to spell library. They didn't give me a sign to use and I ran out of cardboard. They are not good people. I looked at Stanley. Well I'm glad he cleared that up I said. He's a doctor said Stanley looking out the window in his birth country. Good for him I said. The bus was quiet. I think we were all processing the driver's need to explain his handmade sign. I imagined how Stanley had found out that the driver was a doctor. He'd probably been very early and peppered him with questions as he'd done so with me. After a while one more person got on the bus, and once he'd taken a seat, the driver smiled at us all in the large rearview mirror. Next stop, he said, the Trump Presidential Library. About half the bus cheered. There was some issue with the Roosevelt Bridge, so we had to take the Arlington Bridge across the Potomac. We drove slowly out of the city, across the mall, past the MLK statue and around old Abe Lincoln, the marble giant who always looked so uncomfortable on his giant marble throne. Look upon my works, ye racists, and prepare. I wondered if someone had made a Lincoln out of reclaimed Chewingham. I bet they had, at some time. I bet someone had spat out a big wob of hubba-bubba in the heyday that looked exactly like Lincoln's half-moon face with beard and stovepipe hat. I bet they'd remarked upon it, maybe to friends. Stuff like that probably happened all the time in the hubba-bubba heyday. I never did get around here, said Stanley absently to his reflection in the window as we passed the monuments. He was clearly one of those people who couldn't stop talking. The best statues are hidden off the beaten track, I told him. Near Martin Luther King, you have the FBI COINTELPRO one in the bushes on the tidal basin. It's an interesting statue. You can look through a sniper rifle sight at the centre of King's big granite stone forehead. And then at the Korean War Memorial, at the back, in the bushes, there's a CIA biological weapons statue of a guy in a plague doctor mask scattering chicken feathers covered in songo fever. And then there's a new one in the sun up above the Vietnam Memorial. The golden bone spurs on a plinth. It commemorates all the draft dodger presidents. Bush, Clinton, Trump, Biden. I wasn't sure Stanley was listening anymore, so I shut up. But after a while he spoke again. I wish I studied more history, he said quietly to his own reflection in the bus window. When we arrived at the library site there was another check-in desk. We were given name stickers and a small sort of remote control box they called an emoji wand for recording how we felt about the exhibits. There were a bunch of emoji buttons on the wand. Thumbs up, thumbs down, angry face, love heart. And we were told to press them whenever we felt the need to respond to anything 
we heard or felt or saw. And then we were let through to a small refreshment area. There was a big food table with Chick-fil-A nuggets laid out in little rainbow cupcake wrappers. And there was a bar sponsored by Budweiser that was giving out small cups of something they were calling their new American craft beer. It tasted just like their usual beer. There was a one-man band dressed like Uncle Sam playing I Wish I Was in Dixie with a drum and whistle. I ate some chicken and sipped some bud, and a man called Chuck introduced himself and asked what I did. The perennial American question. I told him I was a boom operator, that I identify and speculate around economic booms, globally. He nodded his head and gave me his card. He worked in corporate realty. He said, I think we can do business. And then he left to get more chicken and hand out more of his cards. If you're not networking, you're not working. I watched him operate. He was quick, like an airborne plague. In ten minutes he must have hit half the tent. When he wandered into Stanley's orbit I went closer. Stanley was talking to a couple of the red hat bros. When LBJ announced the war on poverty, we wanted to know where to surrender. Chad handed the MAGA guys his cards but didn't give one to Stanley. A woman from the checking table, one of the hosts from McKinsey and Company, turned on a portable microphone and welcomed us again to the future home of phase one of the Trump presidential library. Her name was Cindy. She reminded us to press our emoji once whenever we saw something we liked or something we didn't like or something we loved. We want to know how you're feeling all the time about everything, she said. Your responses will fine-tune the exhibits in the library for decades to come. We were led out of the refreshment tent and across a sort of building site into a large circus big top. The whole tent had been partitioned off into rooms and spaces and there were trailers and booths and cubicles jammed with computers and exhibits everywhere. The lights went down and a big screen hanging from the top of the room began to play a film. Pictures and clips of Trump from his life set to stirring heroic music. Moments from The Apprentice interspaced with pictures of other presidents and famous people from American history. A shot of Jackie Robinson, Henry Ford, MLK. A picture of Trump grinning and holding a wad of cash outside one of his bankrupt Jersey casinos. Neil Armstrong on the moon, shots of him in the Oval Office creating the Space Force. The music rose to a climax and then the words, Donald Trump, a real American president, appeared in large tombstone type letters on the screen. At some point I had begun to mash the angry face and the thumbs down buttons on my emoji wand. Other people had begun to do the same and little emojis had begun floating up on the screen. They were mostly positive, lots of hearts and thumbs up. But I was glad to see that my angry faces were there, and a few others as well that I couldn't possibly have been responsible for, so I knew I wasn't exactly alone. I was clearly outgunned and outnumbered, but not alone. The film froze on a picture of Ivanka at the White House. It appeared to be some sort of glitch, 
but the emojis were still working and the screen was soon flooded with hearts. I pressed the thumbs down button, but they, they didn't show up. Just more and more hearts flooded the screen. The film cut out and then started to play again from the beginning and we went through the whole sorry thing once more. There were even less dissenting emoji responses this time. It was as if we'd grown numb already. I decided not to use my wand. It was like I was being used to train political engineers how to deliver more effective propaganda or something. How to deliver the maximum amount of high arousal emotions at any time. The film froze again at the same place, the same picture of Ivanka. It was flooded with emoji love hearts again in seconds. And then the host appeared. She apologised for the malfunction. This really is a work in progress, she said, but thank you for all the feedback so far. She encouraged us to go forth and explore the big tent, and people started moving out and around. I followed them to see the exhibits. I decided to do a big loop of the tent to get the full lay of the land before looking at anything close up. There were twenty or so exhibits and booths. A big NRA thing hailing Trump as a true patriot. A Covid booth calling it the China virus and praising Trump for creating a vaccine quicker than any vaccine ever created and saving millions of Americans' lives. At the far back of the tent there was a McDonald's attached to a Trump gift store. The McDonald's was selling a new burger called the President. It looked like a double quarter pounder. They also had a new sauce, Trump sauce, which turned out to be just ketchup, but in a little packet with his face on it. One of the red hats from the bus walked up behind me. He already had a little string bag full of the little cartons of Trump sauce. He told me he was a franchise owner. He had three restaurants in Pennsylvania. He told me the Trump sauce was going to be a game changer. He asked me what I did. I told him I was a boom operator. I interfaced between boomers and millennials to extract and maximise mutual value opportunities. He looked at the counter of the McDonald's with the menu showing Trump's face advertising the President Burger and Trump sauce, and he pressed the heart button on his emoji wand three times. I took a walk around the rest of the exhibits. The American Heritage Institute had a thing about an economic miracle, Wall Street being at an all-time high and such such. There was a Build-A-Wall Zone sponsored by ICE that was geared towards kids. Since there was no kids at the event, two more red hats off the bus were building the wall with big sponge bricks. The wall was going up between a desert and a lush-looking Eden landscape that represented America. On the desert side, there was what appeared to be little statues of oozy-toting drug cartel henchmen and Chinese plague carriers. And on the Eden side, there was a church with a bunch of happy white families having a barbecue and playing hacky sack on an immaculately sculptured lawn. A large screen in the exhibit ran clips continuously of Trump shouting wall stuff at adoring crowds. On day one, we will begin working on an impenetrable, physical, tall, powerful, beautiful southern border wall and an info slide on one side claimed to prove that the wall had in fact been paid for by Mexico as it had already prevented smuggling and terrorist attacks that would have cost the country trillions and trillions of dollars. 
The screen went on to show ICE soldiers cheering as they stood over chained refugees in border concentration camps. And then it cut to Kamala Harris, the vice president. The Red Hats stopped building and stared at the screen agog. They'd clearly been trained to hate Kamala, but then we heard what she said. I want to be clear to folks in this region who are thinking about making that dangerous trek to the United States-Mexico border. Do not come. Do not come. The United States will continue to enforce our laws and secure our border. And they each gave her a thumbs up from their emoji ones. I turned away disgusted. Outside the exhibit, a host from McKinsey and Company approached and asked to check my emoji wand. She took it and pressed some buttons and listened to someone in her headset, and then she gave it back to me and thanked me for my participation. It's working, she said as she walked away. I went to a water fountain and got a drink, and put the wand down on top of the water tank and left it there, pretending to have forgotten it. I walked over to a display called Truth Versus Lies, sponsored by Fox News. It was full of quotes and informational panels attacking liberal bias in the media and promoting Fox News as the only source of truth. They even showed a lingering picture of Jamal Khashoggi among a montage of hate for what they were labelling as the lying press. Khashoggi, of course, had been butchered, actually and literally cut to pieces by the Saudi royal family probably with the full approval of the Trump administration, since he'd been researching a piece looking at the corrupt financial dealings of Jared Kushner. Kushner was Trump's son who'd been given the highest security clearing in the US government without being qualified or properly vetted, and was widely identified as the point man between various multinational crime syndicates linking Trump to Russian oligarchs through close ties to Benjamin Netanyahu's corrupt Israeli government. I was starting to feel kind of numb. It was worse than I ever could have imagined. It was all so arrogant. The informational content itself was easily disproven. Even a child could do it with a simple Google search. But I realised that was not the point. Nazi propaganda was always easily disproven. But it didn't matter if enough people wanted to believe it. There was a very low-tech booth on the impeachment. I looked at it and saw that it stressed that Trump had not been convicted by the Senate and that the charge against him was minimal and fraudulent, especially when considered in full historical context of presidents who had not been impeached for the things that they had done. Most of the booth was given over to information on the other presidents and their crimes everything from Iran-Contra to lying about weapons of mass destruction, and of course the great straw man of Benghazi. Another event host approached me. He had my emoji wand. Hey, you left this at the water fountain, he said. I took it and walked slowly towards the exit. I passed a little room called The Future, which featured pictures of Ivanka and Jared in various videos and stills, 
that were being completely swamped with hearts and likes, although there was nobody actually near the screens. I threw my emoji wand heavily onto the floor and then stamped on it until it shattered into several pieces. I left the tent and went back to the bus. Nobody tried to stop me. As I went to take my seat on the bus, I was surprised to find another attendee had also abandoned the exhibit. Her name badge said she was called Guinevere, and she looked very upset. As upset as I felt, perhaps. She shook her head in sorrow as I walked by her and I stopped to talk. Yes, I said. Fucking unbelievable. I feel sick, she said. Me too, I said. I was relieved to find someone who felt the same, and I couldn't help myself and I began to unload on the whole experience in a long rant. Just how utterly fucked we were as a species, and the arrogance that they think that they could get away with something like this. This wholesale rewriting of history. Propaganda from a rich ruling elite flexing their control over the narrative of humanity. How we were truly living in what Sheldon Wolin identified as a managed economy under a system of inverted totalitarianism. She held up a hand to stop me. No, she said, letting out a queasy burp. <coughs> I had too much chicken. I shut up and took my seat. I should have gone to the Renwick. That's a wrap. Hope you enjoyed the show. Please take a second to give me a five-star review in whatever app or whatever you use to listen to this podcast. And if you really want to help, Click the link and buy me a coffee. Andy's podcast, a podcasting podcast, is sponsored by the American Shoe Council. Celebrating over 40,000 years of bipedal history. Shoes, how else are you going to protect your feet? How are the cicadas around you? If you want to come and chow down on some gutter lobster or land shrimp I'll have you over even throw in a few beers have a great week bye 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 <laughs> <laughs>